0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, page 976 in your black Bibles for those that are using those. If you don't own a Bible, I always want to encourage that you can take that home as our gift to you today. Typically at Embassy Church, we would like to go through sections of Scripture consecutively through a book of the Bible and just work through some sort of series or arrangement of scriptures. And so we are off that path these last three weeks. We've been doing a series called The Church and considering what it is that the Bible says about the church and primarily its leaders. So the last two weeks, we've looked at 1 Peter 5 and then a little poem in 2 Samuel 23 to consider who are the leaders of the church and why does God give humans authority, even though they're sinners, and they mess it all up all the time, uh, we looked at that plan last week. The image that I've suggested to help kind of describe and illustrate the entire sermon series has been that of a diamond. And we looked at week one, the Hope Diamond, that sits in one of the museums in Washington, D.C. It's one of the most well-known, most famous diamonds. In the world, and that it sits on prongs. If it was hidden in a basket or in your pocket, as I've mentioned, then it would not be as beautiful to your eyes as if it was on display. Therefore, the church is the prongs, and Jesus is the diamond. And you could think of it this way. We've primarily looked at the prongs for two weeks, and so it seems fitting on Easter Sunday. Let's just look and behold the beauty of the diamond, that is, Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension to heaven, His reigning and ruling over all things, and how that is beyond glorious. It's good news for you, it's good news for me, it's good news for the world, and therefore it's what we should uphold as a church. It's why we exist. Our mission is to uphold the diamond, Jesus. And so let's read Ephesians 1. This is a great text that explains the nature of the church and its connection to the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read verse 23, the end of the chapter. And this is one long sentence in the Greek. If you're a grammatical person, you'd think this is one run-on sentence, and it needs a little bit more um, punctuation. Uh, Thankfully, this has been translated into English, and it's got punctuation, so I'll I'll, I'll take some breaths and uh, not just try and read it in one breath. So, starting in verse 15. For this reason... And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Reading this one long run-on sentence is sometimes hard to figure out, now, what all is he doing? So I'd like to just begin by trying to help kind of get through all of the fluff or the fat, cut it all down, and like, what's kind of the heart? So here's the big idea. It's in verse 16. The big idea of this passage is that Paul cannot stop praying for the Ephesians. Most people believe this is a circular letter, but particularly it first landed in a church. A church of Christians in a town called Ephesus. So that's where the name Ephesians comes from. Paul can't stop praying for them. Thanking God for them. And then he explains the content of his prayer... And then you see in verse 17 that he's praying that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, and that the reason he's praying that is in verse 18. So here's, what is he praying for? In a nutshell, I'd say it's the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I can't stop praying for you. Well, what are you praying, Paul? I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That's his big idea in terms of the content of his prayer, which I think does beg an immediate application question. Is this what you're praying for? I think as we consider this message, that's one just to start out question for you to be thinking about. Do your prayers, the things you're asking God for, do they look like this? That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That phrase in and of itself is a bit strange, isn't it? Our heart doesn't have eyes. And if you're thinking about eyes, wouldn't you be thinking about them opening or closing? I pray that the eyes of my heart would be opened. Some of you that went to church in the 90s would be familiar with that wonderful song, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. That's not what he says here, that the eyes of the heart would be enlightened, that there would be light that comes. So the picture here is that the eyes of our heart would have light. I think the best way to understand what Paul is praying is that you need to understand his worldview, his context. And Jesus, in fact, gives us a little background to this historical worldview and context. Matthew 6, 22 and 23. The eye is a lamp to the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? There's an understanding in the day that Paul is writing and praying these things, that eyes are associated with light, and that that goes down into your heart, and therefore it shows what kind of person you are. So Paul is not praying that your eyes would be opened, that they would see light. The image is that of being in a a dark room, and the problem is not that your eyes need to be opened, but that you need the shades of the windows to be drawn back, or the light of the light switch to be turned on. Therefore, you can actually see clearly. It's either too dark or dim or it's pitch black and you can't see something that is there. That's the image of his prayer. My prayer is that all of the darkness would vanish and that you would have light to see what's really there. So what's really there, Paul? What are you praying that the light would start to shine on and that we would see? Three things. That you would know hope, inheritance, and power. All three of these describe that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that you would know. Know what? Hope, inheritance, and power. So if we were to summarize this in one sentence, the big idea of this text is Paul keeps praying. He says, I keep praying that your hearts will know the hope, the inheritance, and power and the power. So, therefore, our structure for the sermon should follow God's Word. Amen to that, anybody? You want me to just come up here on Easter Sunday and say, how about I've got some cool thoughts, some, some, some nice ideas. Let me share some stories. Here's what happened in my week last week. What happened in your week? How about we just have this sermon follow that structure? Let's pray that the church embassy and the broader church knows the hope, the inheritance, and And the power. Let's think about those. And then I'm going to pause at the end of each of these points. And we're going to pause and we're going to pray for each of these points. I hope you're okay with that. You're at church. So, surprise, surprise, we're going to do some praying. We're going to do some preaching. We're going to do some singing, which is another form of praying. So, you've had a lot of praying already. Let's think about this one at a time. Let's pray that the church of Jesus Christ knows the hope. And what is the hope? Starting in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, I want light to come so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's our first prayer. The church of Jesus Christ needs the hope of God. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It is life-shaping certainty. Read Hebrews chapter 11 as a good example of this. It is about confident assurance in something that you cannot see, but you know is real and is there and is true. Have any of you seen Jesus' body on the earth last week? Or the week before? Or any point in your life? Have you seen the resurrected Christ? And the answer I would imagine for all of you is no. You have not physically touched and felt Jesus. But all of you that are Christians are here today because you have a certain understanding, a hope, that he did come on this earth, he did live in flesh, he did die on a cross, and he did rise again from the dead. And that all of human history has been so transformed by this, both in the Christian church naturally, but then even outside of the church. We have a life-shaping certainty, a hope. When we you and I use hope, we say I hope it doesn't rain later today. It's wishful thinking. I hope that works out for you. Good luck with that. Someone asks you a question, you might say, "I hope so." That's not what we're talking about when we say the church needs hope. It needs life-shaping certainty. You and I cannot live without hope. And I mean that quite literally. You cannot live on this earth without hope. When hope is gone, your life will cease to exist. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor in the concentration camps during World War II and the Holocaust. He survived them. After coming out of it, He shared his experiences in a book as a medical doctor as he cared for the people in the camp where he stayed. One of his observations was that he noticed some of his fellow prisoners seemed to wither up and die, whereas there would be other prisoners that were with him that stayed alive and lived through harsh conditions. Frankel tried to figure out why this was happening. Why were some of these people who seemed just as strong on the outside Physically healthy, and then dying, withering up and just dying. So, in his book, he wrote these words When a prisoner lost faith in his future, he was doomed. That's the big idea here. When you lose faith in your future, you will be doomed. Frankel actually gives an example of this and he tells the story of one of his friends in the camp and he says that this friend had a dream, a very vivid dream that the war was going to end on March 30th and that he would be set free from prison. This friend was convinced that this dream was a special revelation from God and so he lived with a certain hope in that day setting him free. As March 30th drew nearer, it became clear from the news report's Reports that the war was not ending. So, on March 29th, this friend had a high temperature and a fever. On March 30th, he passed out and was unconscious. On March 31st, he was dead. Frankel concluded, after looking at this man and other cases like it, that his loss of hope lowered his body's resistance to all diseases in the camp and he died. Therefore, if we lose our faith in the future, we're doomed. Everyone that's ever committed suicide or feels the thoughts of depression has lost hope in their future. The question then is not if you have hope or not. You're here right now and you're alive. Therefore, you've got hope in something. Otherwise, you'd probably be dead. The question is, who is your hope in? What is your hope in? We put our hope in all kinds of things that are not worthy of our hope being put in. How many of us are putting our hope in our future through our career? This new job. The hope of aspiring to something great in my career. How many of us are putting our hope in others around us? Maybe it's our spouse. The hope of a spouse if I'm a single person that one day I might get married, the hope of our children. I've seen time and time again, especially here in the northwest suburbs, we're putting our hope in our children, and therefore all the activities and the events and the things that we're trying to put in them because that's what our true hope is in. One of the main reasons for your struggle with sin One of the main reasons for discouragement and depression is not external circumstances, but rather misplaced hope. Therefore, Embassy Church, as we seek to encourage one another in the church, we must seek to provide hope. Rock-solid, constant, unchanging hope. Certainty. If we as a church lose the faith of our future, we congregation, we will die. The congregation of embassy church will cease to exist if we lose hope for our future. Churches die because they aren't having hope being given to them week after week. They're just being told, here's what you should do to live. Here's how to live a little bit better, a little bit more moral life. You're not being given hope One of my favorite life-changing books was a book where a guy told me that most churches should put on the front door of their church all ye who seek for hope don't enter here. Because the three steps for every church is you're not doing good enough, here's how to do it, so go try a lot harder. Abandon all hope Those who enter the modern church. Misplaced hopes. Shouldn't have hope in ourselves, should have hope in Jesus Christ. Does the church today have its hope in the one who has died and risen and conquered, or is the church placing its hope in its leaders? We have done this teaching series because the church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago and the church in the United States of America is struggling because of misplaced hopes, of putting their hope in men and women, in leaders. Leaders have continued to let us down as Christians, using the church as a platform for their fame, for making money, for some sort of sexual satisfaction, The church today needs to know that there is still hope even when leaders let us down. I do not want to act as if there is not a dark cloud hovering over the church. There is. Therefore, we need to pray like Paul is praying to not give up on the church. That the eyes of your heart would have light given to them. And that there is a hope. There is a hope found in Jesus and Jesus alone and not in any church or any pastor or any assembly anywhere, not any program, not any activity. It is only Christ. The hope of Christ making all things new, the hope of Christ setting things straight, the hope of Christ becoming the judge and setting straight those who have abused those in the church. That is our hope. The hope of the promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's our hope. So... Before we move on to our second point, let's pause and let's just pray for that right now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son Jesus and we pray that the eyes of those in this room would be enlightened with the hope that has been given to them through the the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's real. It's there. It is reality right in front of our faces as we open your word. But some of us in this room are not seeing it. It's like we're in a dark room. Father, we pray that you would turn on the light, that you would pull back the shade and that we would see Christ. Lord, we wanna pray for those that are around us. We have friends and family members that have given up on the church because they have been hurt and rightfully so have they been hurt and questioned the church and the validity of it. We wanna pray now that the church would not fall because of people quitting on it, because of them having no more hope in church. God, we pray that there would be scores and scores of people that are considering giving up on the church, and that you would open their eyes, give them light to see that there is hope in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Point two, let's pray that the church of Jesus Christ knows the inheritance The inheritance is found in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the inheritance? The glorious inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance. What is it? Well, it's really not so sure amongst all serious Bible students, scholars. The debate of this text about the inheritance is two possibilities. One, the inheritance is the inheritance that Jesus is receiving after his death. Or the inheritance that you and I receive after our death. And the grammar doesn't necessarily make it clear And I'm not going to dive into all of the reasons for or against the arguments. Here's the thing. Either it's one or the other, and both are really good and worthy of us to be praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened with this glorious inheritance. Let me explain. If the inheritance is the inheritance of what Jesus receives after his death, what's that? What did Jesus not have prior to his death? You, the church. He did not have reconciliation between God in heaven and humans on the earth. So, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is an inheritance that's received, and that is God and the church are back together again. It's like he lost his bride, and therefore, through his death, he gets his bride back. There's a lot of you that are looking around at churches, and you're thinking, it's not that worthy. That doesn't seem like a glorious, rich inheritance, the church. Jesus cares about the church that much. He wants the church that's gloriously rich. Do you see why your heart needs to be enlightened with the reality that no matter how messy and broken and sinful and how bad leaders let us down in the church, the church remains to be a glorious inheritance for Jesus Christ. That's hard to see sometimes, isn't it? When the dark cloud's rolling in, it's hard to see the hope. When there's difficulties in the church, it's hard to see it as a gloriously rich inheritance that Jesus so wanted that for the joy set before him, he endured all of the shame that was associated with the cross. So that's a good option. I'm good with that one. Or there's another option. The other option is that this text is saying, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened So that you would know the inheritance that you will receive, Christian. That there was a death, and then because of that death, the inheritance gets dispersed to you. Jesus was the one who died. So, you guys know how inheritances work, right? You've got an older family member, you have to be in the family or in their will in order for you to receive the inheritance, and then they die, and it's only after they die that you get the inheritance. So it is with Jesus Christ. You need to be, A, in his family, in his will, and he has to die, and after that death, then disperse all the riches of the inheritance. So the question would be, are you in the family? Are you in his will? Did he write you in his book of life and say, you are going to receive the inheritance? This text says that it is the glorious riches of, Of the inheritance that are in the saints. And if I had to pick between those two options, I am leaning toward the second one, this one right now, that the inheritance is talking about our inheritance that we have as saints. Now, for anyone here that's not used to reading a Bible in the New Testament, sometimes you hear the word saint and you're thinking, oh, that means the super holy Christians. That is not the way the word saint is used. It is not about super holy Christians, it just means Christians. So, do a word study sometime and read how the word saint is used by the New Testament authors, especially this author, Paul, and you'll notice he just means an average Christian. So, if you're an average Christian, meaning you've recognized that you're a sinner, you've recognized that Jesus has died for sin, and that you want to put your hope in him through his conquering of sin, through his resurrection, and his reigning and ruling, and say, that's my Lord, I'm going to submit and obey him. That's what a Christian is. If that's you, then you already now have the inheritance. You have it now. It's it's been written down into the will. You just have not received the tangible expression of it yet. So I want you to imagine the scenario of two men or women working a job for one year. Let's just, for the sake of this illustration, imagine that it is the worst, most disgusting, most difficult job that you could imagine. Now, I would imagine that for each of us around this room, we would probably be thinking of different things because we've got different personalities or tastes, but let's just think broadly. It's a terrible job, one that you would just hate to think about doing for any length of time. And that is your profession for the next year. Person number one at the end of that year is going to receive the lump sum of $1 billion for their labors. Person number two is going to receive $1,000 for their labors. Remember, this is an awful, dreadful burden of a job that you wake up every morning and you think, man, I hate my life. I cannot believe I have to do this again. Some of you are thinking, that's my job right now. (laughs) So, what's going to make the difference? Why would one person, person A, who's going to get a billion dollars, seem to wake up cheery and go to work with a smile on their face? When I was thinking about this illustration, there's a guy that worked as a janitor in my college, and he was a Christian, and his name was Phil, so he must have been awesome, right? (laughs) He would walk around the dorm singing and whistling hymns. It seemed like nothing could faze this guy. And then there was the moment where I knew, like, all right, this is the test. Some kid just, like, made this giant mess. He vomited all over the hallway, and it was just this, oh, like, that's the kind of job that, like, cleaning up after college students. And that may not have even been the worst of it, but that day, I just remember like, oh, I, I'd hate to have that job. He turns around the corner, sees it for the first time, and he's just still whistling, doesn't miss a beat. He goes, "Whoop! Well, time to get the mop. And just keeps whistling along, gets the mop, and cleans the throw up. I'm just thinking, wow, are you even human? What is different about this guy? Whereas person B is going along their job, they wake up in the morning, they show up to work late, they can't wait to get home, they can't wait for the weekend, life stinks, and they are thinking about quitting almost every day. How would knowing that your inheritance through the gospel of Jesus Christ is far greater than a billion dollars transform the way you go to work every day this week? Or do whatever task God has laid on your heart Or put in your path. Wouldn't you be like person one and think, hey, it's just a year, and at the end of this, there's a big payout, an inheritance, a a reward coming that will far surpass any problem that I'm facing now in this job. And you can whistle while you work. Now, I do not mean that to say that Christians— should always be happy-go-lucky, clappy, like everything's good and that we don't ever have sadness and sorrow. But do you get the point that if the eyes of your heart were enlightened, this would radically transform the way you live your life right now? Because you know that there is a gloriously rich inheritance. That inheritance is that hope diamond. It is Jesus Christ and all that comes with being in Jesus' family. What does it mean to be in Jesus' family and get the inheritance of Jesus? A lot. Like everything. Like literally everything. He owns and rules over all. Therefore, if you're in his family and you're a child of the king, then you own with him co-heirs of everything. We're not talking a a billion dollars. A billion dollars? He has it all. He has every dollar that ever exists. And he will in the future. And it will be ours, humanity. Those who are in Christ, that's your inheritance. It is the whole earth. Read 1 Corinthians 6 and notice that he says, why are you guys getting all upset about things happening every day? Don't you realize that you're going to inherit the earth and you're going to rule over the angels? What? (laughs) Like that's when you're reading the Bible and you're just like put it down for a second. say. Did he just say what I think he said? We're going to inherit the whole earth and rule over the angels. That seems like a little like far out there. No, that's reality. The problem is that right now, you're not seeing it because of the darkness of sin or the self-absorption of our egomaniac lives, right? that We can't see that there's a glorious inheritance down in our future. So therefore, we should pray. We should pray now that the church of Jesus Christ knows this inheritance. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this down payment that has already been given, the seal of the Holy Spirit that proves that we have inherited now all that is in Jesus Christ. Oh God, we thank you for this amazing gift, this future reward that has already started to break into the present, but one day, gloriously, we'll be so much better. So we ask that all the members of the church here at Embassy, they would know the life-transforming power of their inheritance. That they would wake up tomorrow morning, and regardless of what you've called them to do tomorrow, that they would know something good's coming. It may be in a day, it may be in a year, it may be at the end of their life, but this life is just a vapor. It is gonna be here and gone before we know it and then the inheritance comes. So we're praying now. We're praying that through this preaching of the word that all of these saints in Christ would know their saintly status and believe who they are in Christ. And we pray for those outside of this church, for those in the broader church, those who are going through much more difficult times that are waking up and wondering if they're even going to survive. Whether they have enough food to eat or whether somebody's going to break down their door and tell them for believing in Jesus their lives are going to be over. I pray that in the face of the most difficult persecutions, the most difficult sufferings, that Christians would put their hope in their future inheritance that has been guaranteed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We want to pray that the church would know the hope, the inheritance, and finally, the power. How do you know that Jesus is the one that, in fact, has the whole world and therefore gives to you an inheritance of hope? Notice the progression here between these things. You need hope to survive. You have been given hope in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. How do you know that there is that inheritance and that hope? The power. Let's read these final verses. All of them are about the power by the way. Starting in verse 19, he wants to know that the eyes of your heart, he's praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. we pray. That's the prayer of Paul. He's praying. We want to pray that you would know the power of God. Four different examples are given to display God's power in this text. Like I said, power is the key idea, and then the rest, down to verse 19, are all kind of describing the power. So what's the first thing that's described? The greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the great might first that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Example number two, the power that he seated Christ at his right hand, at God's right hand. So Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's point one. Point two, he seated Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. And this is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. By the way, that little phrase, age, this one and the one to come, it's a Jewish way of describing there's this age, which is the age of sin, and then there's the age of of the Messiah's coming and ruling and reigning and fixing everything. So there's two, two ways to view the whole human history. And so he's saying that whether you're talking about that age or this age, he has rule and dominion and a power over it all. And I believe this is both seen and unseen power. This is kings, queens. This is government officials, teachers, police officers, anybody in authority. But then this is also the unseen reality. These phrases are mostly used to talk about Satan, demons, spiritual warfare type language. And therefore, he is raising him and seating him at the right hand on the throne next to the Father. That's number two. Number three, he then put all things under his feet, which is an echo back to the scripture reading that Joey read for us early in the service. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I put all of the enemies underneath my feet as a footstool. He's sitting, not because he's tired, but because he's finished, because he's conquered, because he's ruling as king over all of creation. Fourthly, He is then given head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, this is pretty great power. Immeasurably great power. And I want for you to think about how this power could be in your life. And I was teaching through Philippians, Erica, as she was praying this morning, she was working us through Philippians. I don't know if you knew that. She was working us through Philippians chapter 2 in her prayer. and It said that Jesus emptied himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Give him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, amen. And that's what she was praising God for. The very next verse in Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for you know that God is at work in you. And I remember in Wednesday Bible study, as we were working through that text, there's a power within you. And when you know that power that's within you, it then unleashes the ability to work out your salvation. The way to grow as a Christian is to know the power that is within you. If you don't know the power within you, you're going to be doing stupid stuff that doesn't make any sense. So I illustrated it like this at Wednesday Bible study. I said, a while back, I was chopping down a tree with an axe. It was a very dull, bad axe, and it took a long time. And then my father-in-law g- gave me as a gift for Father's Day a chainsaw. And at, at first I thought, oh, it's kind of like the comparison between the axe and me trying to chop down the tree and the chainsaw. But it's, it's actually worse than that. It's, it's different than that. It's like this. I want you to imagine trying to go out and cut down a tree, And you've got this big heavy chainsaw. It's gassed up. It's ready to go. It works. But instead of turning it on, you try and cut down the tree by just kind of rubbing the tree with the chainsaw. Because, you know, after a while an axe does work. That's the stupidity of Christians trying to grow without the power, without the knowledge and the understanding of the resurrection, ascension power of Jesus in your heart. So friends, the reason why we pray, the reason why Paul prays that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you would know this power is because it's like telling somebody when you watch them, hey, hey, buddy, not to embarrass you at all, but this is kind of foolish. You pull this engine thing and you start cutting down the tree. It's a whole lot better. Like that's what it was made for. That's what it was designed for. And your, your life would just be so Transformed. The power over sin that you're struggling with. Do you, have you tapped into the power? Or are you blinded or darkened in your eyes of your heart to see the power? So that's the image I want you to think about. The greatness of his power toward us who believe. The very same power that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead is the power that's within you. Let that sink in. On this Easter resurrection Sunday morning, when we think he is risen, he is risen indeed. Wow, what display of power over the thing that you and I feel the most powerless about. Death. How many of you have been like, you know, I've been thinking about it. I got a strategy for beating death? It's called Pilates. It's gonna do it. It's my spinach diet. It doesn't work, friends. Like, you can still eat your spinach and do your Pilates. I'm not telling you not to do that. But at the end of the day, none of us have beaten death, doctors and medical professionals. What are they doing other than trying to continue to research and say, hey, we got to try and beat death? It's not working. As technology has advanced, it's increased death because humans are using that technology. The problem is the sinfulness of our hearts. Therefore, we need the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And some of you, I know, as you look face-to-face with your sin, you're thinking, man, this situation is, is too big. The eyes of your heart are dark when you think that. The unbelief. So whatever darkness, whatever depression, whatever discouragements, whatever struggles there are in your heart, in your life, in this church, in the other churches that are around us, when you hear Can the gospel actually speak into that? Does it have power? Well, did God raise Jesus from the dead? That's the sort of message we need to be reminding each other of. It always comes back to the cross. The hope that you have and the inheritance are all because of Christ conquering through the cross his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and his putting all things under the feet of God of Jesus Christ, defeating all powers, rulers, and authorities. Some of you might be well aware that I've been spending the last year or more studying the ascension of Jesus, and on this resurrection day, I want to make sure it's clear. When uh, Erica was reading John chapter 20, did you notice that when Jesus and Mary were talking, he said, hey, I need to leave. That it's, it's my job, my, my, my process It's not done. There's something more that I must do. I must ascend to the Father. And that's what our text talks about. And that's such good news. So many of us, our natural inclination is to think Jesus isn't here. That's bad. On this resurrection day, think Jesus is alive. That's good. That means conquering of death. But furthermore, think that his being seated at the right hand and not here present is actually better. Better than if he were here right now. And that's one of the reasons why I've been spending so much time thinking about this. One author that I read recently said, faith has in its foundation four great cornerstones on which all of the church is built. The divinity of Christ, meaning that Jesus is God. The incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The atonement of Christ's work on the cross then his resurrection and ascension to the throne. The last of these is the most wonderful and the crowning jewel of them all, the perfect revelation of what God has done for us in Christ. And so, the Christian life, it is most important that we understand the glorious fruit of all that comes before it by understanding what comes after it, his resurrection and ascension. Recently, as I was reading a book on the ascension of Christ, they did a good job of explaining that, you know, one of our most beloved Disney movies, The Lion King, does a really good job of illustrating this point. The Lion King is a story of a king's ascent. From the moment the movie begins, Simba is declared the heir to the throne. He's designated to the office as the start of the movie with Rafiki, that baboon, who lifts up before the animals of the kingdom as they bow before him and say he will be the future king. The rest of the Lion King story describes the death of Simba's father, then Simba's exile and seeming death, and then eventually his homecoming to Pride Rock. But before he can ascend back onto the top of Pride Rock, Simba must have a battle with Scar, the evil lion who killed Simba's father and all of the hyenas. Even though that Simba was earlier and previously designated and appointed, and then even after he conquered, he was yet to be enthroned as the king over all of the land. At the end of the movie, after that battle, the important scene occurs that is sometimes overlooked the camera shifts to Rafiki bringing the story to full circle and Rafiki takes his staff and points to Simba and says go up to Pride Rock. An old era has ended and a new one has begun. In order for Simba to claim his kingdom and be installed as the king he must ascend and demonstrate that he has conquered. Simba dramatically ascends the rock and then he lets out that big roar. And in much more beautiful, glorious way. Jesus Christ, the designated King. From the beginning of the Gospels, God declared him that this would be his Son, his Son with whom he is pleased, was anointed at his baptism with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' mission on the earth was to defeat the powers of darkness and restore the rightful rule of his kingdom. However, if we stop on Resurrection Sunday, we will leave the story incomplete. Jesus must be installed as king. He must be enthroned. He must ascend to the right hand of the Father and receive all dominion and authority. And Jesus did not simply come to conquer on the earth. He came to conquer heaven and earth. And so he soars to the Father's right hand and he is there now and he still is alive. He sits down and he rules, acting as our king and reigning both heaven and earth. Therefore, church, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Go make disciples. Without the ascension of Jesus, there is no missions. Without the ascension of Jesus, there is no prayer. Without the ascension of Jesus, we have no high priest interceding for us day after day. Without the ascension and reign, we have no power over the darkness and the evil forces. So let us not pause here on Resurrection Sunday. Let us remember that 40 days later, As many Christians will do on May 30th, there is an Ascension Day. And it's much greater than Simba in The Lion King. And it's much more glorious. And I want you to know that there is power. There's power in the heavens. And it is coming down as he pours out his spirit on the church. So let's pray now for the church to know this power. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the good news of the gospel and the giving of Jesus Christ, the Son. We thank you for the power that is displayed, the immeasurably great power. We can't even measure it. It's it's too beyond our imagination. We thank you, God, for the way that Christ died and then was risen and then now he reigns. We take comfort and have hope that he reigns, that if he is the head, then that means we're the body. And our union with him means that we have access now to the heavens. We can enter your throne room now through this prayer, through the blood and the name of Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name Lord. God, we thank you for that. We praise you for the power, and we ask that the eyes of the heart of all who are here would be enlightened. That there would not be no more darkness to think, my sin's too great. The darkness is too dark. Help us to know that there is gas in the engine and we just need to turn it on and see and savor what is here within us through the Holy Spirit and put the Spirit to work as we do battle against our sin, against evil. Lord, I pray for those who are outside of this church, those in the body of Christ, that have disconnected themselves from the head, that do not realize that the church needs to be intimately connected to the head who is Jesus Christ and that the rest of the body only makes sense in light of the head, that he is not only head as authority and ruler and judge, but everything that's good comes from him. And so we ask, Father, that there would be enlightening of the eyes for those that want to give up on church, that think that the church is not worth our time and investment, that we love Jesus but we hate the church, that that would be a a statement that we make no more. And that our eyes would be enlightened that the church is connected to the head and that the head is ruling and reigning over heaven and that they can't have one without the other. So Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel which is then the gift of the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we close our service, we want to take the Lord's Supper, which is a way that Christians for the last 2,000 years, in obedience to Christ our Lord, has given us authority to demand and declare obedience and repentance, and that if you have received Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been baptized, and you have said, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and